Philippians 1, we'll read from verse 12 through verse 26. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else, and that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this evening from um, a week full of busyness and demands and calls upon our attention, and God, also from reminders that our lives are transitory and impermanent here, and that there are troubles all around us, and God, we look away from all of that to you, the one who is unchanging, the one who is eternal and has no beginning and no end, the one who is our constant and we praise you, God, for being you, for being that. We praise you, God, that you have determined to save before we ever sinned, that you are not reactionary, but God, you purpose to rescue for yourself a people. And God, we also praise you that because we are malleable and changeable, that we who had fallen and sinned, God, you are able to rescue and to move from the, the camp of darkness into the camp of light. You're able to move us out of Adam and into Christ and to make us, God, what we were not. And God, we thank you for that and we thank you that there's more yet ahead as you continue to 
conform us to the image of your own dear son. God, as we see how Paul looks at these realities tonight and how he has fixed his heart upon them and how they shape his thinking, not only of now, but of death. God, we pray that you would help us, that that your spirit would come near and that you would help us to align our own thoughts to your thoughts, to what you have given to us in your word. And God, we pray that all who belong to Christ Jesus, that our hearts would be made glad in him and that we would rejoice. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we return again to Philippians 1. I'll remind you that in the first part of chapter 1, verses 3 through 11, Paul has expressed his thanksgiving for the Philippians and also his prayer for them. And um, in, in doing this, he prays that their love would abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that they can distinguish between the things that differ or they can uh, approve the things that are excellent. And all of this to the, the glory and the praise of God. And then in verse 12, he begins to describe his own circumstances to them. And not just what's happened to him, but also, more particularly, how he views his circumstances and how he's responding to his circumstances. And he's saying this to people who are concerned for him because they love him. And so by telling them how he views his circumstances and how he's responding to his circumstances, he is in a sense instructing them, here's how I want you to view my circumstances. And here's how you should respond to my circumstances. And how does Paul respond to what's happening? How does he view it? He views it all through the lens of God's activity. And he responds with rejoicing. So my circumstances, my imprisonment has turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. The Praetorian Guard and everyone else, they know that I am imprisoned for the cause of Christ. And so he rejoices. He looks and he says, many have been made bold to preach. And so Christ is proclaimed. And there are some that do it from from good motives. And there are others that do it from selfish motives. And they try to do me harm by preaching the gospel. But I rejoice because Christ is proclaimed. And then he turns a corner in verse 18 and he moves from looking back to what's going on and how he's going to praise God to what will happen possibly and how he will respond to that. So at the end of verse 18, he says, yes, and I will rejoice for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ. And he goes on to describe how whether by life or by death, doesn't matter which one, he trusts that Christ will be exalted in his body, and so he's going to rejoice. And then in verse 21, he gives us kind of the very heart of his reasoning with kind of a a twofold statement. We looked at the first half of this last Wednesday night, where he says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And it's the second part of that that we'll look at tonight. For to me, to die is gain. Is gain. Now, as we considered the first part of that last week, for to me to live is Christ, um, we, we considered that in kind of four areas, thinking of other things that Paul has said to kind of flesh that out. Paul, what do you mean 
when you say, for to me to live is Christ. And we talked about how for Paul to live is Christ because to live is a, in this life is to live a life of faith in Christ. I'm living by faith in Christ Jesus. I trust him. I look to him. I live upon him. I draw life from him. But not just faith in Christ, but love to Christ. Though Paul, in a sense, like us, you know, we could say we, we've not seen him yet, but we love him. We believe him and we rejoice in him. So love to Christ. And then third, fellowship with Christ. And fourth, service for Christ. And so in each of those ways, Paul could say, for to me, to live is Christ. And you remember that actually the verb is not even there. It's for to me, to live, Christ. And to die, gain. So, having said to live is Christ, we now turn to this second part. For to me, to die is gain. As we consider this tonight, I want us to begin by thinking about some of the views that people hold regarding death and dying. Because Paul's view about death is so very different from how people typically view death. How many people, other than maybe some odd person who kind of has a death wish, how, and that's not Paul. Paul's not fatalistic. He's, he's not having, you know, he, he's not saying, like, I have this, this death wish and I'm just ready to end it all. And if this soldier wasn't tied to me, you know, I'd check out. He's not saying that at all. So how is it that Paul views death in such a way that he looks at it and he says, this is gain for me. It's better for me. When most of the world doesn't look like that. They don't view death like that. Lloyd-Jones has captured some of the prevailing views of death through a series of poems that he collected. I want to share those with you briefly. One of them is by a fellow named Walter Landor who wrote a short poem entitled Dying Speech of an Old Philosopher. It's just a few lines. He said, I strove with none, for none was worth my strife. Nature I loved, and next to nature, art. I warmed both hands before the fire of life. It sinks, and I'm ready to depart. I am ready to depart. What does the poet here express? Well, it's kind of a resignation. I warm my hands by the fire of life, the fire sinking. I'm ready to depart. What else can you do? The fire's sinking. I, I resign myself to death. Death's coming. Not much I can do about it. So I'm ready to depart. Is that what Paul means here when he says, For to me, death is gain. I'm in prison. Who knows what Nero's going to do? He's probably going to kill me. And if he doesn't, the people in the next town might. I mean, how many times have they tried? Death's coming. I'm resigned to it. Is that all that Paul means when he says, for to me, to die is gain? Surely he means much more than that. Or even the, the kind of view that says, um, you know, there's so, so many hurts here, so much suffering here. It'd just be better when death comes and all this suffering ends and all these hurts are gone. Or, 
I've got so much, so many more friends now and so much more family now there than here that I'm, I'm just ready to go there. Is that all that he means? Another view is expressed in poem by a former U.S. Secretary of State, John Hay. He writes, My short and happy day is done. The long and dreary night comes on. And at my door, the pale horse stands to carry me to unknown lands. The poem's longer, but I'll stop there. I mean, what do you hear? It's fear. Unknown lands. The short, happy day is done. Fear. Can Paul mean that? Well, obviously, no. He said to, to die for me is gain. But how many look at death and that's all they see is fear. Some rightfully so. But then others who know the Lord and yet don't live upon all that He has said, maybe ignorant of all that He has said, maybe unbelieving a little bit about some of the things He has said, still don't view death like the Bible would instruct us to view it. Still kind of held in bondage to the fear of death. Though Christ has died to deliver them from it. You know, Job in uh, Job 18.14 spoke of death as the king of terror. He talks about how a person is torn from the security of his tent. And they march him before the king of terrors. Before death. But Paul doesn't view death that way. He sees it so very differently. Another view. Some view death not as something to be feared. But not because they have some grand reason why it's not to be feared. It's not as though the, the sting of death has been removed in Christ. But rather... You know, you muster up courage and you face death like you face other things. And so you put on a brave face. Death's coming and I'm going to meet it head on. That kind of, you know, false bravado maybe. General Alexander, I didn't stop to see who he was, but he wrote a poem expressing that kind of idea. He wrote and said, but storm and gloom and mystery shall only nerve my courage high. Who through life's scenes hath, bo hath borne his part may face its close with tranquil heart. No trembling hand will grasp the rein. This life has not been mine in vain. In unknown lands, I'll seek my place. I'll drain the cup and boldly face the heritage of the human race whose birthright is to pierce the gloom and solve the mystery of the tomb. I follow some and others lead from whom my soul would ne'er divide one fate for all. Where moves the great procession, there let me abide. I'm going to face it with courage. No trembling hand here. And yet, if he doesn't know Christ Jesus, when he meets him, surely there'll be much trembling. Is that what Paul means? These poems were known by 
another man named James Powis Smith. He was a minister in Virginia and he fought with Stonewall Jackson. He saw a lot of death. But he didn't think those poems were adequate. And he takes some of the themes that they write about, the pale horse and such, and he writes his own poem. The pale horse stands and will not bide. The night has come and I must ride. But not alone to unknown lands. My friend goes with me holding hands. I've fought the fight. I've run the race. I now shall see him face to face who called me to him long ago and bade me trust and follow. He expresses triumph. Christ is calling me home. And so this pale horse comes not to bear me to unknown lands, but he says the pale horse bears me to my home. So not resignation or fear or false bravado, but, but triumph. And that's how Paul speaks of death in triumph. It's gain to me. It's gain. Well, all of those are men who lived long ago, but how much has changed? So many people try to ignore death. Forever chasing youth. Or, or we view death as a kind of a taboo subject and you only face it when you have to, like at a funeral. But you don't want to talk about it. You know, it's, it's, it's a downer, it's depressing. We don't want to talk about that. At other times, we act like death is only and always better. Someone dies, well, at least they're not suffering anymore. Are you sure? I mean, if they're in the Lord, you're right. But if they're not in the Lord, how wrong you are. The suffering has really only just begun. Someone dies and we say, rip, you know, rest in peace. But for the person who dies outside of Christ, there is no peace in death. It's only Christ Jesus who brings peace in this life or the next. So there's lots of opinions about death and what follows. Others say they just don't know. But the Bible speaks assuredly about what follows. And based upon what the Bible says, for the unbeliever, death should be terrifying. Sometimes we speak of death as being natural. But death is not natural. It's common to all of us. But it's not natural. Death was not... God did not create us to die. Death is a part of the curse because of sin. The wages of sin is death. Romans 5.12 Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Because of sin, it's appointed for men to die once. And after that comes judgment. Jesus spoke of death for those who die without him as a place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In Luke 16, he tells of the rich man and Lazarus and he talks about how they both die and he gives a little information about what comes next for them. Here's the rich man living in luxury and the, the poor man who begs crumbs from his table but the poor man knows God and the rich man does not and he says now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom 
And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. For the unbeliever, for those outside of Christ Jesus, death should be terrifying. And to pretend otherwise is just that. It's pretend. It's playing make-believe. You can have your opinions. You can feign ignorance. But the reality is, the Bible says what, what I've just described to you. And the Bible speaks from... A position of knowledge, not supposition, not, uh, uh, you know, let me express my opinion. You've expressed yours. Let me tell you mine. But when Paul speaks of death, he's not talking in generalities. This is what he's saying, you know, true for everybody. True for the believer. Should be true for the believer. But not for everybody. But he is speaking for himself, particularly. For to me, to die is gain. Another question that I think that raises, and worth taking a moment to try to answer, is this. Is Paul unique in comparison? Is Paul unique, pardon, in regards to how he faced death? Is he in a unique position to face death? Well, in regards to the world, yes. He's a believer. He's a person who is united to Christ Jesus. He has been moved from, from Adam to Christ. And so he's in a position that those still in Adam are not in. In that regard, yes. But in regards to other believers, is he unique in that sense? And you know, we could say, well, Paul's an apostle, and that's true, and he's unique in that sense. But as far as being a Christian... I don't think that Paul is in a separate category when it comes to how he faces death in comparison to how any other believer in Christ Jesus faces death. Paul is not unique in that sense. He is a man who was a sinner saved by grace, united to Christ Jesus. He looks forward in hope to the day when Christ will call him home. And he looks forward to the day when he will have a resurrected body. And that's the kind of hope that every believer has. And the basis of his hope is the basis for the hope that every believer has or should have. But now in experience, is Paul unique? In the way that he actually experiences or views his home going, his death. I still think there are a lot of believers who, would, who kind of hear what Paul says, to die is gain, and think... Really? You sure? And if that's true, I don't... Again, it's not a uniqueness of position like Paul was in a better position than you are as much as it is that Paul lived upon Christ perhaps better than you do. He knows Christ. He lives upon Christ by faith to a degree that perhaps you have not. 
He hears what Christ has to say about what's to come. He believes it. He lives upon it. And I think that the reason that Paul can speak with such confidence that to die is gain is because of what he's already said in verse 21. To live is Christ. And if you're wishy-washy about that point, or if you're not settled on that point, if you've got something else that tries to fill in that, that space for to me to live is then you're going to have a hard time saying with great confidence and rest to die is gain. But Paul, with the same confidence that he says to die is gain, says to live is Christ. To live is Christ. And so death for Paul was not simply an escape from suffering or or getting out of this terrible situation that he finds himself in to something better. But if to live is Christ then to die is to get more of that for which I have lived. Life is Christ. It's to see Him exalted. It's to live in fellowship and love and service and joy to Him. And to die is more of that. And so for Him, yes, it's gain. In fact, He says in verse 23 that to depart and be with Christ is very much better. Not just a little bit, marginally better. It's very much better to me. It really is gain. It's, it's, it's profit. It's advantageous for me to die. It's the better option. Because Jesus. He'd express something like this in 2 Corinthians 5 2 when he said, For indeed in this house we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven. And then in verse 8, you know, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And so Paul could say, As can every Christian, this is for my good, this is advantageous, it is profitable for me to be with him and that is not just Paul's opinion or wishful thinking that is his reckoning based upon what God had said his, the truth of scripture well with all that kind of in mind in what way is dying gain let me give you a few ways in which dying is gain for Paul and for the believer Dying is gain because of better knowledge. Jesus said in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This knowledge of God is the essence of eternal life. And not only is it the essence of eternal life, but the growth of our Christian life And the enjoyment of that life is intimately tied to the growth of our knowledge of Him. And living on that knowledge. So not just accumulation of facts. Not just, you know, kind of putting away systematic theologies in our head. But knowing Him in relationship. Fellowship with Him. That kind of idea. Peter expresses a similar thought in 2 Peter 3.18. When he says, but grow. 
in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And think about how many times Paul's prayers turn to that very subject. I pray that your eyes might be enlightened, that you would know. Even here in Philippians, verse 9, he prays that their love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. I want you to know why. Because as their knowledge of Christ grows, their love to Him grows, there's a growth in grace. If this is true now, if our enjoyment of the Christian life, our growth in the Christian life is linked to our knowledge of Christ and a growth in knowledge of Him and of God, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. If that's true now, if it's true of Paul when imprisoned in Rome, however well you may know Christ, however well Paul may have known Christ there, how much more will your knowledge be when you find yourself in His presence? Now we walk by faith, but then by sight. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 12, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Then I will know fully. And surely, as he knows Christ more fully, his heart will leap in love to Christ more fully and in enjoyment of Christ more fully and in the worship of Christ. He knows Christ now. He enjoys fellowship with Christ now, even chained to a Roman soldier. But what about then? It won't be the absence of the Roman soldier as much as it will be the presence of the Lord. I mentioned a moment ago, I think, I know I mentioned last week, 1 Peter 1.8, and though you have not seen Him, you love Him. That's now. But 1 John 3.2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him, because we will see Him just as He is. We don't see Him now, but we love Him. But then, we'll see Him just as He is. So, do you see what Paul's saying? If you hear that I've died, dear Philippians, know this. Gain. Gain. I will see Him just as He is. I will know Him more fully. Gain. Think about how our view of Christ, whatever it is, how it is dimmed now by an ongoing war with worldliness. Do you not feel that? By an ongoing battle with the corruptions of the flesh. Our spirit and our flesh wage war against each other. And this, is, you know, this ongoing battle occurs. But when we pass from this life to the next, immediately we are in the presence of the Lord. And the stench of this life, all the remaining whatever, is left behind. And what a leap of knowledge must occur in that moment when we pass from this life to that and we first lay our eyes on the Lord Jesus. 
Spurgeon said, the least saint in heaven knows more than the greatest saint on earth. However much the greatest saint on earth may know of the Lord Jesus, the least saint in heaven knows more because the least saint has seen him face to face. If you love Christ now, though not having seen him, how much more will you love him then when you do see him face to face and you know him more fully? Paul could say, for to me to die is gain because then I will know him more. Dying is also gain because of completed sanctification. Again, Paul was an apostle, but he's also a man. A sinner saved by grace. In his own words, 1 Timothy 1.15, he said it's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Paul never painted himself as being anything other than what he was. He never tried to say, I was not ever that. He acknowledges, yes, foremost of all, and yet the grace of God found me. When Jesus saved Paul, Paul was a changed man, forever different. And yet Paul was not a perfect man. Paul, like every other saved sinner living in this world, still had an ongoing battle to fight. There was still a race to run. There were still... Thoughts that had to be brought captive to the Lord Jesus. There were still deeds of the flesh that had to be put to death by the Spirit. There was still the the war between flesh and Spirit. And surely Paul looked forward to the day when he would be made complete. When he would be fully conformed to the Lord Jesus, knowing that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And Paul could say, that's me. I'm one of them. And God has foreknown me and predestined me to be conformed to the image of his son. And he looks forward to the day when that is reality. And when we go to be with the Lord... We are conformed to the image of His Son. We are one of those for who Christ is firstborn among many brethren. You remember in Hebrews chapter 12. Verse 18 and following. The writer of Hebrews writes and says, You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing fire and to darkness and gloom and whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who heard begged them no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. 
the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The spirits of the righteous now made perfect, completed. And Paul looked toward the day when that would be him. And you and I come to that same, that mountain, to that God, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And surely, when you think rightly, your heart longs for the same thing. To be among that assembly and to be counted as those who have been made complete, perfected, because that is the end for which Christ redeemed, created, and predestined you. Dying is gain because of completed sanctification. Let me give you a third one. Dying is gain because of unending fellowship with Christ Jesus. Now, Paul enjoys fellowship with Christ Jesus now. Then, you know, writing from Philippians, from his rented house, chained to a soldier, awaiting word from Nero. It's not like he has no fellowship now, but one day there'll be fellowship. No, it's not that. But it will be better fellowship because of a better knowledge. And it will also be a better fellowship because there'll be no interruptions. It will be an unending fellowship. We could say that there are times now, I think the believer can say that there are times now when it seems in our experience that the Lord is so near to us and there are times of sweetness and fellowship and we rejoice and we long for it to never end and it does. And then there are times when it seems like in our experience God is so far away from us We wonder if he even knows who we are. Heaven seems silent. And we have to remember that we walk by faith. Not by sight, not by feeling, but by faith. And we we continue on looking for a time when God seems to turn his attention back to us. And we feel his nearness again. But think about what it will be then. In the presence of the Lord Jesus when there's never any interruption and there is never any sense of his presence withdrawn, never any sense of distance between you and the Lord, but only constant and ongoing and ever increasing fellowship and love and worship to him whom your heart adores. And thinking on that, how could Paul say, you know, Heaven would be good, but really life right here is pretty grand. And I want to stick around for a little while longer. No, for to me, to live is Christ. But let me tell you, to die is gain. It is profitable. It's advantageous to me. And Paul knew that immediately upon leaving this life, And going to the next life, he would enjoy that fellowship. You remember 
While Jesus was on the cross, one of the thieves turned to him and said to him, Lord, remember me today. Remember me. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Or, again, Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 5. To be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. I know His fellowship, but when I leave this body, I will be present with Him, and then I will really know fellowship. We sing about it. In fact, we're going to sing about it in just a few minutes. But one of the verses of the hymn, The Sands of Time Are Sinking, says, O Christ, He is the fountain, the deep, sweet well of love, the streams on earth I've tasted, more deep I'll drink above. There, to an ocean's fullness, His mercy doth expand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. We are grateful that now there are times when the love of God and the nearness of God and the fellowship with Christ seems so near and sweet and dear to our hearts. We're grateful that His love toward us is not dependent upon our feeling that or experiencing that. But how much better to know that the day is coming when that will be our experience eternally. What Paul has here is not just an opinion. It's not a philosophical view. What he has is the Lord Jesus. The Lord has gotten a hold of him. And he is pursuing Christ so that he will be found in him. And as you read his letters, he invites all of us to know the same Lord. Run to Him. If you are not in Christ Jesus, if you have every reason to fear death, run to Christ. Not just because you want to escape death, but because Christ is glorious and because you can have fellowship with Him now and eternally. Because He's worthy. And for the believer who experience of what Paul is talking about here maybe is on shaky ground, shakier than Paul's, I would encourage you to look at Christ and feast on Him and love Him whom you have not seen now with as much zeal as you can muster as you pursue Him through His Word till your heart says with Paul's, for to me, to live is Christ. To die is game. 